surprises that we have. But it's, um, so I'm excited about what the Lord is, it has for us in us taking the steps of faith and hosting the course. And we're going to see what the Lord does. It's going to be, I think, uh, very fruitful. And uh, please contact uh, Denny and Angelina. They have a particular, they have a, a way for you to give toward them. You can give through church or you can give directly to their account and they can help you identify that. Because of the location that we're going to, it's not printable material. That's why it's not hard that they provided for your insurance. That's why you can contact them and they'll be able to help you out. Uh, just be praying for them as well as for Evan, who's right there, and Vasilekson, who's heading to North Africa in January. So this is uh, it's pretty cool. And many of you have gotten a letter from Evan. Uh, he is still needing some funds, so please keep praying for them, for the Lord just to miraculous provision for them. It's pretty exciting to, uh, to be sending our own. Evan will be there for three months, uh, and then possibly with another trip after that. But what's really cool is uh, Evan and Denny and Angelina even about one day serving pretty cool how the Lord is doing that, and, and we're excited for them, but we want to be praying and also uh, asking the Lord how we're to support. All right, Psalm 97, uh, we're going to, this, this Psalm is a companion to last week when we look at Psalm 42, just in uh, fighting our feelings with proven hope that we considered last week. This one, and, and as I asked the Lord, knowing we're, I wanted to do two Psalms, felt the Lord leading that way. But we said, I just said, Lord, what type of psalm do you want us to do? And what kept uh, just rising in my heart was just a psalm of declaration to God. A psalm uh, that would remind us. Remember last week we considered that it's, I call to mind, I remember. And so many of the psalms do that. When we're fighting our feelings and, and we're listening more to our feelings, there's a, a, an appropriate getting up straight, sitting up straight spiritually, so to speak. And we, we want to recall the greatness of God and the goodness of God. And so this psalm is to help us do that. So it's a bit of a companion to last week. But it's, it's one that will also, in the two, two weeks, last week and this, really are, are a groundwork for the series that the Lord uh, will have us start next week in Zechariah. Zechariah is one of those books that's got a lot of visions. It's got a lot of weird captions in there, horses and olive trees and candelabras and stuff, and it's just kind of, it's one of those books that we tend to move past because we don't quite understand it, but just in my preliminary preparation for it, Jesus is all over the place in Zechariah, and then, so it's going to be fun being able to see uh, the light of Christ be able to shine through even as the people of God were struggling, and I, and I would, would tease it out this way for the series in Zechariah that we would is there a category in your life that you just need God to show up in? Just period. Like, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of praying for this. I'm tired of experiencing what I'm experiencing. I just need you to show up in this area because it's, it's continually providing or, or uh, bogging me down with discouragement. That's what Zechariah is writing into for the people of God, and so it's similar. We have similar experiences that we can be able to say, God, you're going to speak into an area of my life. Maybe I've neglected. Maybe I've just ignored because God hasn't shown up in God wants to speak to that through that series. So it's going to be a, going to be a good one. So 
but we have the joy of going through Psalm 97 this morning. The Word of God says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. And all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Father, we ask that this, the, the uh, proclamation of this psalm would capture our hearts and we would, we would truly discover and, and, and be renewed with a joy in your rule and reign over not just our lives, but all the earth. Put everything in perspective for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Now, we often anticipate joy as the result of an experience. So what we do is we plan for an experience that we think will be fun, and we expect joy to follow. When the experience lacks and we don't feel the anticipated joy, we actually will suffer with some sorrow. If we, oh, man, we wanted everybody to get together. It was a dud of a party, and now I just feel weird because I didn't experience the joy that I wanted. Or the trip that we had hoped for and the joy that we'd expect from that trip, seeing something we've never seen before, and it didn't work out or it just wasn't right. We were sick while we were there. Sorrow then was because we, we think joy, we anticipate, we experience we anticipate an experience to give us the joy. The psalm before us this morning is a reminder that everlasting joy comes before the experience. And it's grounded in the knowledge of God's rule and reign over all things. When all the experiences of our lives rob us of joy, we need then to fight for joy. If we seek more experiences, we'll just be left in more sorrow. But if we find, if we discover and recall the truth of God, then we'll meet the joy that we need. We will rejoice no matter how bad the day is. This is a psalm that commands the people of God to be happy. Even in the feelings that we fight, even when life doesn't go well and we, we are bumping up against our own flesh or everybody else's flesh in our lives, God still says rejoice, and that's a command to be happy in him. This uh, whole concept of being glad in God, rejoicing, <clears throat> and having our joy found in God has been a years-long process of learning from Pastor John Piper. Uh, many years ago, I read a small, probably around 20 years ago, I read this little small book called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. And... <clears throat> 
it was amazing how much was packed in this little bitty book. But through that, I learned that joy is not the result of an experience with God, but is to be the foundation of our pursuit in the experiences of God. We, we settle our souls because God is God and he has captured us and that brings the joy that we bring to experiences. So often, when we come to church, we don't feel like worshiping. I understand that. I sometimes have to uh, raise my hands in worship to get my mind and my body into the worship mood. I don't, I don't do that as a, a, like a superstitious thing or something. I just I need to have a physical demonstration of worship to capture everything about me, to say, Lord, I want you to be the focus right now because I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel joy coming into me. But what I'll do in that worship is I'm reminding myself of God and his exaltation, and then I'm going to start I'm reminding myself of the truth of God, which brings a joy increases my experience. And it's, it's with the preaching of the Word of God, too. Many times, uh, we might feel that the, the Word didn't connect, or I, I maybe a series of Sundays, I'm just not feeling it, Jeff. I'm not feeling the result of joy listening to the Word of God. And, so, and you may have tried radio preachers or internet preachers. You're just trying to figure out something that's going to bring about joy. Without realizing that we're just chasing experience after experience and not understanding the truth about God, which brings joy. And God commands his people to rejoice. He commands his people to be joyful. It's not a plastic joy where we just plaster smiles on our faces and we act like everything's okay. That's not what God desires. He wants us to find an everlasting joy in him. But what if we don't feel the joy? Again, a few years later, after reading John Piper's Dangerous Duty of Delight, I came across When I Don't Desire God, and he wrote that book specifically for people who are asking that question. What happens if I don't feel like desiring God? He coined the little phrase, you've got to fight for joy. In that book, Pastor John explains that when we don't feel joy in God, we need to fight for it, and he gives reasons for why we don't seek joy in him. Many times the, the onus is on us because we settle for lesser pleasures. We don't understand the joy that God has for us in our experience with him. He says this in When I Don't Desire God. One of the reasons that today in the Western church our joy is so fragile and thin is that this truth is so little understood. The truth, namely, that eternal life is laid hold of only by a persevering fight for joy of faith. Joy will not be rugged and durable and deep through suffering where there is not resolve to fight for it. But today, by and large, there is a devil-may-care, cavalier, superficial attitude toward the ongoing daily intensity of personal joy in Christ because people don't believe that their eternal life depends on it. Listen, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Love, joy. That's pretty, pretty high on the list. God is a, he's, he's concerned with us in our experience with him. And he says, if we have experienced eternal life and the, the Spirit of God coming to dwell within us, 
The result should be joy and an, ever, uh, an everlasting joy that shows up in our days, even though the, the day may be bad by our own definition or standard. It feels like spiritually it's just overcast. The sun might be physically shining. We just feel worn out. In those moments, we need to have a proper understanding of God and how he, he brings us into his experience of joy in the Trinity. He experiences it himself. Remember what Jesus said? Make my joy. Oh, Paul says that. Sorry, he wants his joy to be completed. But Jesus says his love, the off-the-cuff stuff that comes to my mind that I need to kind of chronicle through and I mix up verses and stuff. Jesus says something about that. In John, around 17, prayer, this far I'm not. But for, for our purposes this morning in this psalm, if this to repeat this, everlasting joy is grounded in the knowledge of God's rule and reign over all things. When we don't feel in a, a joyful experience with the Lord, or we don't feel joy in God, we have to remember his reign over all things. He's in control. He's sovereign. That's what the psalmist, the sons of Korah in Psalm 42 said. They remembered the sovereignty of God, and they remembered his control over everything. So the first set of verses, uh, verses 1 through 5, I think, describe joy in God's powerful reign. The psalmist sets the purpose of the song uh, at the outset. Rejoice in God's reign. He then employs storm language to describe God's powerful reign. Describes clouds and thick darkness and fire and lightnings. These images bring back to mind the manifestation of God's presence with his people when he delivered them from Egypt. A pillar of cloud led them by day, and it turned to fire to lead them by night. And then it led them to the, to the mount called Sinai where there was some real huge storm happening on top of that mountain. Exodus 19 records that. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke from a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him, in thunder. There was an enormous, God's display of his character and his power was with a storm. Remember, he answers Job out of the whirlwind. God describes himself in storm language. Because in a storm, you have, you have both, it's there, especially in the clouds and thick darkness. You have present, he's there, and he's also very mysterious. God's manifestation in thick cloud communicates the understanding. We don't quite understand all that he is. You can see a cloud, but when you're in the cloud, you can't touch the cloud, and it obscures vision. We don't know what's on the other side. Scriptures, God, God tells us that he is spirit when Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says God is spirit. Tracks. He attracts our attention, but he cannot be manipulated by us. We can't control the wind. It's healthy also to think of God as mysterious. Because it humbles us to know we haven't figured him out yet. And he's designed his revelation that way. 
But the mystery of God is not to frighten us, it is to comfort us. When, when kids are in a tense situation, maybe you experienced that as a child, there's a tense situation, maybe it's a storm, maybe don't, they don't know how to interact with life, but when you happen upon the scene or you remind them, it's okay, I'm with you. It's our relationship with God as his children. We don't quite understand what's happening or him, but the comfort of his presence brings us peace. He's there with us. God's presence brings comfort when there's lack of understanding on our part. The fire and the lightnings point us back to God's refining process that he has for his people, both on Mount Sinai, but all the way through in the promises that we have in the New Testament. God's manifestation in fire communicates his purity and his relentless desire to refine us so we know his presence and his character in joyful fullness to complete that joy. He burns up what is not pure. He burns up what is not holy in our lives. And it's terrifying as he sends his lightning around the world to point to his eternal purity. I can't figure out lightning, but it's certainly majestic when you see it far off, isn't it? It still is. When we see those storms in far off distance at night, during the summer, we just go, wow. God's saying something. That's what verse 5 communicates. He's got control over creation. The psalmist concludes the, the joy in God's powerful reign with a, a reference to creation, his power over creation. He causes mountains to melt like wax. His presence is so powerful. Capture this. His presence is so power, powerful Things that don't burn melt nothing. God is a great God, and all the earth knows it. When we think of his power, we should feel it as high and lofty, something that we can't attain to or manipulate. God is God. We are not. Powerful. This comforts and settles his people, both on Sinai and through this psalm, but also us, settles his people so they take joy in his powerful reign. The next couple of verses, verses 6 and 7, I think point to God, uh, the joy in God's righteous reign. Look, the, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and the peoples, all the people see his glory. Now, this is a and points to worshipers. Uh, goes from joy in God's powerful reign, and then the, the context of how we respond to the, the great things in life, or really how we respond to value. Worship is about value. We worship what we value. Even if we value a feeling, we might value a feeling that's on the other side of an experience. And so we, we crave that experience to get the feeling so we can try to feel joy. Next, in these verses, God's rule and reign is exalted over worship. What we value will also call us to praise. We praise what we value. C.S. Lewis said, praise completes the experience of joy. We don't, we don't quite feel, like, like last night when Justin Jefferson on 3 and 17 caught the ball, and ran it for a score. We felt something, but you probably went, yeah! The praise thing. 
and it completes, it's just like, not, if, I, if you're not invested in it, you replace it very fast. But if you're like me and you're invested in, I want this game to go LSU's way, you feel something and there's a, a response. That's praise. And our praise needs to be ordered correctly so we experience God's joy in our lives. The problem is that, and the psalmist points to this, the all too familiar tendency for us to value what we see in the natural rather than the eternal. And so we go after idols. We have that wandering and the chasing happening in us. We see, we see value in an idol that will give us a quick relief or a quick return and joy rather than God who reigns over all. And the psalmist appeals to sight. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. He's saying, look, it's easy to see an idol and think that's going to help you out in life and give you the life that you desire and crave. But look to the heavens. With your natural eyes, look to the heavens. They proclaim God's righteousness. Now, we know from other scriptures that the heavens proclaim his glory. But this is unique because the psalmist says it proclaims, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. How? How do they proclaim his righteousness? concept of righteousness here points primarily to God's sovereignty. It's an aspect of his control over all things. He is righteous in that he is sovereign. There is no one above him. But I also think there's, a, there's an understanding that's implied when we look to the heavens. God's righteousness also encompasses his justice. He is the sovereign judge, and he judges hearts. Psalm 7, verses 8 and 9. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. There's a connection between God's judgment and righteousness. His sovereign rule, he is the sovereign judge. So think about this. When we stare up at night at the wonder of Orion or the Big Dipper or the Little Dipper or the moon itself and, and we're looking at the night sky, we sense first God's control. He's sovereign. He keeps it all together by the word of his power. But we also sense he's holy and he's pure. And we sense from that God's judgment we don't repent. We sense the reckoning that comes to every man. Determine if God is okay with us or not. But the psalmist goes after. You who make this the second part of verse 7. Who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him all you gods. There is a, a chasing of cheap joy. When we run after idols that we, we can see, thinking they'll bring us lasting joy when they really won't. We chase deep, hard idols. What we're chasing in our lives, when we feel like we're going around in circles, we're chasing control. I want control over people. I want, I want to feel a particular way, so I want control over people or a circumstance in order to get a security. We chase a deep, hard idol of comfort. I, wanna, I want life to be easy for me. and I don't want things to get in the way of that. And we chase an idol of significance, approval. 
So this is where, where fear of man comes in, fear of rejection, feelings of worthlessness. We just think, if I can, if I can achieve this from this person or this thing, then everything will be good. But we settle for cheap joy because those joys don't last. Tim Keller, in an article, Idols of the Heart, said, Idolatry is not so much wanting bad things as it is turning good things into ultimate things. That's helpful for us. When the psalmist calls for all the gods to worship him, look, worship him, all you gods. What does that mean? He's calling for true value to be placed in order in our lives. This is helpful when it comes to the good things of our lives. The call is for the ultimate things to be surrendered to God so they come back in order of the good things in our lives. We don't make them ultimate things. We bring them back into the order that God wants them. To exist in our lives so we experience his everlasting joy. We can't throw off every idol if they're showing up in our families, in our relationships, in our work. But we can surrender the joy we're putting in those things in unhealthy value that we continue to put on those good things to make them ultimate things. Again, Tim Keller along this line. Rejoicing and repentance must go together. Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. Rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide passing inspiration instead of deep change. Rejoicing in Christ is also crucial to repenting for idols because we must remember that idols are usually good, worthwhile things. We make idols out of work and family, for example. We should not, therefore, learn to hate these near idols. We don't want to love our work and our family less. We want to love Christ so much more. And we want to hate the far idols, the self-saving need for power, approval, etc. That keeps us enslaved. Therefore, joy, glory, and a sense of God's beauty are, a, are crucial to deep-seated, transforming gospel change. We are to see joy, feel that joy in God's powerful reign, we're also to feel that joy in God's righteous reign. And the psalm concludes with joy in God's just reign. Perhaps another concept we haven't connected before is how God's judgments are to bring us joy. This is an appropriate rejoicing that occurs when God defeats his enemies and our enemies. There is a, a joyful peace when we experience God's place on his throne which are founded, from verse 2, in righteousness and justice. This is not gloating over someone's pending judgment before God. We should, be joyful over, we should not be joyful over another's looming punishment. We, we should not have, have said or should not come out of our mouths, uh, you're going to get what's coming to you. That's not our place. We should therefore be, be weeping over somebody's pending judgment. Somebody's pending a, a appearance before God's throne. God is exalted. He's exalted because of his supreme glory and he's exalted, he's exalted by our praise. The final few verses are a call to worship. Love God. Hate evil. Recognize God's intentional care for his people. He preserves. He delivers. Those are reasons for, for exalting. And through God's judgments, we have gladness. 
Verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. But there's a judgment that God has already made over us as his people that actually gives us that joy because the joy is for the righteous. Look at that. You have uh, verse 11. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. So look, the righteous, look, light is sown and joy is sown. Light is sown for the people of God that have been purchased for his glory. And joy is sown for the upright in heart that God has changed, taken out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. The righteous that God sows light for are those who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ for salvation. God promises to sow his light in us. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he has, uh, the, he who said, let, let, shine out of dark, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's also a promise to, show, to sow this joy in us those who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. So therefore, God's promise to us is to sow joy. Now, in that tapestry, we have sufferings, we have mountaintop experiences, deep valleys. We have plains where we're walking along and we're thinking nothing's really happening. God is sowing joy in every one of those experiences. God does the work of giving joy to us. We're to trust him. We don't and can't work joy in us. We can't get ourselves moving in joy, but we have to see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we will experience joy. We see Jesus in this psalm in verse 5. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. You see the two different spellings of Lord? One's in all caps. That's to remind us that that's the Hebrew word for God Almighty. Supreme God, no rival. See that other one? Lord with the lowercase? That's to represent the Hebrew word Adonai, which is master. So what does Jesus tell his disciples? Master, Lord, same equivalent. So when we see that Lord, we can make a quick connection. That's Jesus. The mountains are melting like wax before Jesus. What's the mountains? Sin and death. Melt things that don't burn up. Things that are not conquered apart from God are conquered because Jesus is in our place. And that's what we're trusting. He accomplished the impossible so we'd be consumed by his grace and not his judgment. See, there's already been a judgment upon us. It was just on Jesus in our place. So we get to experience the fullness of God's joy, the fullness of his love. So that means rival thrones fall. Even the rival thrones of our own petty kingdoms that we try to advance, the kingdom of self that we try to advance in our lives and, and, and sway over people, those rival thrones need to fall, church. 
and those petty kingdoms that we seek to establish in our homes and the workplaces that we, they need to fall. He's Lord of all. Imaginary thrones need to fall. Physical thrones need to fall. And the rebellious, wayward thrones of our hearts, our rival kingdoms bow. They bow before him now, but look, they bow in eternity as well. Because this joy is promised for us to be everlasting. Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to the to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Church, we are the bride. He rules over us now. He will rule in eternity. But the the rejoicing, the exalting, different than exalt, E-X-A-L-T, is to look up and see and praise and give high standing to Jesus. But that exalt, E-X-U-L-T, is delighting in. Joy. It's the experience of Christ's exaltation. So we need to do a better job of exalting, abiding in Christ. So we will feel his joy. We will feel his reign and his rule over all things. So this should encourage us, no matter what we're facing, to to cause our hearts to proclaim him, to cause our hearts to say, soul, God reigns. I can rejoice in that. I don't have to wait around for some experience to give me that joy. I can have it settled in my heart now because Jesus purchased it. He destroyed death. He destroyed my sin. He took that punishment. God judged him so I could have joy in God always. Lord, what a wonder. When we recall all of your goodness, when we recall all of your might and your rule and your reign, oh Lord, that brings joy to our hearts because we know you've got this. You've got it. I pray that you would continue to to, to draw our hearts upward to you. And our hearts would bow before you. The the kingdoms of our own hearts would be abolished and, and destroyed in light of your glory and grace righteousness and judgment. Jesus, we rejoice that you took our place so that we might have your joy. Pray for us to experience that. Lord, I pray for those that might be in a situation in their lives that things are just dreary and weary. Lord, come to us now. We rejoice in the truth and the knowledge of your glory shown to us in Jesus.